Welcome to the Compliance 911 Show, a no-nonsense podcast discussing hot topics for today's busy compliance professional. It's everything you wanted to know about regulatory compliance, but we're afraid to ask. And now, here are your hosts, Dean Stockford of M&M Consulting and Len Suzio of Geodata Vision. Well, welcome to our podcast series addressing everything you wanted to know about regulatory compliance, but we're afraid to ask. Dean, we have covered a myriad of topics over the last couple of years. So what interesting topic have you prepared for our audience today? Hi, Len, and it's always nice to see you. I thought I'd talk about the basics of BSA. Uh, We've been talking a lot about, obviously, compliance uh, uh, areas over the last couple of years. And BSA, I've touched on in in maybe different segments, but I'm going to focus today on on the record-keeping requirements. And, And this is one of those areas that we sometimes will see what we call complacency. So I wanted to remind everyone of the importance of sound BSA programs. That's a great topic, Dean. Now, it's my understanding, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, that BSA is examined as part of safety and soundness and not as part of regulatory compliance. Do I understand that correctly? Uh, Yes, you are correct. It is. uh, While there are many compliance components, the regulators uh, view it as part of safety and soundness of an an institution as opposed to a, a compliance examination. Um, although there are, again, numerous provisions uh, that we consistently refer to as the compliance provisions, the overall program is examined for safety and soundness. Okay, that's interesting. So so what are the provisions, Dean? Well, the provisions are quite extensive, so I like to break them down, at least in my mind, and the way that I've t- typically trained to it in the past, um, is two parts, and I always have to classify when I say it, because the first part of it is the BS. And that's all the basic stuff. So, you know, I always get kind of a chuckle from folks when I say it's the BS. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's the first thing that came to my mind, too, when I heard BS. Okay, (laughs) Uh, But the basic stuff, you know, is is everything that, uh, uh, you know, it's all the record keeping requirements that really have been in place for many, many years that most of us already know. Um, And then you have, of course, the A, which comes in for BSA. And the A is, is actually all of the additional stuff that was imposed on us uh, post 9-11. So you have kind of the pre-9-11 and post-9-11. Um, and, and again, I, I, can, uh, I can break those things down further. That's good. You know, uh, I don't know how everybody's mind works, but I know how my mind works. When I'm covering a topic that's got a lot of subheadings under it, I like to have categories established so that you can organize it in your mind and and remember these things. So I think your approach is a, a good way to remember all these different provisions. So tell us about this, uh, Dean, uh, elucidate yeah. on that. Yeah, no, and I agree with you. It's always helped me, you know, to kind of break things down and, and, and work uh, uh, kind of in different parts. And so let me get into the BS. And as I said, that's the basic stuff, the stuff that we're uh, accustomed to, that we've all uh, Uh, used in practice for many, many years. If we've been in the banking or the financial world, um, we have to have board approved policies and procedures. And within that policy, um, the board should designate a a BSA officer. And I always like to say a competent BSA officer, Um, you know, just giving somebody the title 
um, is not sufficient. And, and so they, they should have a competent or designate a competent BSA officer. So you wouldn't give it to the uh, parking lot attendant, I trust. Yeah, no, that wouldn't be a good idea. <laughs> By no stretch of the imagination. Um, but, you know, and, and one of the other record keeping uh, components is, is monetary instrument tracking of cash sales. So any any teller's check or cashier's check that we would sell for $3,000 or more in cash, we would be required to, to maintain certain records relative to that sale. Uh, very similar, large cash transactions reports, uh, better known as the CTR. That would be cash in and cash out in excess of $10,000 in any single day. And that's in the aggregate. And again, for those folks that, that try to go from branch to branch to branch to, uh, to keep their, uh, their, their deposits under the reporting threshold, not only would that be a form of structuring and a suspicious activity report should be filed, but systems... Uh, and, and people, in some cases, have to be able to aggregate those transactions, identify them for reporting purposes. So, again, CTR, large cash reporting, is $10,000, uh, over $10,000 in or out um, aggregated in a single day. We can also exempt um, under two rules. They call it phase one exemption rules and phase two exemption rules. Um, certain uh, companies and in, in, in folks from uh, the regular filing of a, a currency transaction report, which is the CTR. Um, they have to meet certain uh, criteria in order to be exempted uh, for, for that filing. Um, and again, the, the, we would want to look at that. I'm not going to go into great depth today relative to what phase one and phase two uh, requirements are. Um, but uh, by all means, institutions that have heavy uh, CTR activity uh, should consider um, uh, 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 exempting certain individuals and companies from, uh, from routine filing. Wire and ACH transfers, again, uh, $3,000 and above were required to maintain certain re uh, records regardless of how they're funded. Um, suspicious activity monitoring, and this could be a manual process or, or it could be a systems-related process. There are, there are really two uh, anti-money laundering systems out there. One is called a behavioral-based system, and the other one is a rules-based system. So, um, but, but both of them essentially look at uh, uh, behaviors, uh, uh, I would say, of sorts of our customers and notify us or alert us when something just doesn't look right, like the train has uh, gone off the tracks a little bit. Um, and therefore, the institution would have to uh, further investigate those activities to determine whether a suspicious activity uh, report would be warranted. Um, there is also certain thresholds, um, uh, again, that we have to look at as to whether a suspicious activity report is required. Um, so we would want to take a look at those as well. Anti-money laundering controls very similar to your suspicious activity. Um, in a lot of cases, those are automated processes. There are systems that, uh, that help us with our anti-money laundering efforts. Um, and we would report those efforts on a pretty regular basis to our, our, to our boards of directors um, and audit committees. And, you know, they're always purposely vague. When I say the suspicious activity report, we certainly don't get into suspect information when reporting it 
uh, to the board. We typically tell them, you know, a slight narrative as to the circumstances uh, that resulted in the filing and then their, our total exposure uh, relative to the filing on the activities. And then last but not least, which has been in place for many years, and this one, uh, does have an annual uh, expectation by regulators that we train on an annual basis uh, all staff that have BSA AML responsibilities. Um, uh, you know, in this case, you know, perhaps we could exempt a janitor um, within an institution from re regular uh, annual training. But uh, aside from that, uh, everybody down, down through the, the various channels, including the board, are required to have annual BSA AML related training. Mm. Mm. So that's a lot. As you can see. A, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, by my count, I was keeping track as you were enumerating these different subheadings and I counted eight of them. So that's quite a list to begin with. But tell me now, you mentioned two parts. That's just eight subheadings under the first part, the BS uh, yeah. or the basic stuff. What, what comes under the additional stuff, Dean? Yeah. So, yeah. So that that's, you know, I'm glad you observed that. And and that's why I think it's imperative to break it down into those two parts, just because they're so overwhelming. So when you think about just the basic record keeping requirements, you can put those in one category. And then we have to think about really all the things that were imposed on us after 9-11. And hence why I tried to keep my uh, um, my presentation somewhat small today, because each one of these bullet points obviously is critical and I expand upon it. So let me get into the to the A. Uh, the A is all the additional stuff that was uh, imposed on us after 9-11. Um, customer uh, or enhanced due diligence. Uh, customer due diligence, obviously, is, is, is a series of questions that, that we have to uh, ask when the account uh, and the relationship is established. And, and what that does is, is it helps us establish a baseline of risk. So we know whether or not a customer has actually deviated from that risk. Um, enhanced due diligence comes in when we've identified a higher level of risk that would, would really require uh, a much more um, uh, robust monitoring uh, um, uh, procedure. So, um, and, and there are some what we call inherently high risk businesses um, that the examination manual itself has identified in that uh, I've listed, uh, you know, several, um, but money service businesses would be one of those, uh, one of those higher risk entities. And it doesn't say that we can't do business with them. What it says is if you are going to do business with a money service business, then there's a minimum level of due diligence that needs to be conducted and enhanced due diligence for ongoing monitoring. Similar to PEPs and PEPs are politically exposed persons. So uh, uh -oh. with that, yeah, it, it, and it can be a little confusing, but really what that means, it's, it's, it's anybody that has uh, close ties to a foreign political figure. So is it your uncle, your father, your brother, um, uh, or, you know, or, or somebody that has, uh, has indicated to the institution that they have close ties to a foreign political figure. Now I do know some institutions take that. Um, it, it, I always say they err on the side of caution and they, they basically look at everybody that's tied to a foreign, to a political figure, regardless of whether they're foreign or not. I don't necessarily recommend that because, again, it refers to foreign political individuals, uh, mm -hmm. non-resident alien accounts. Again, another area that is considered higher risk and we have to conduct additional due diligence. Cash intensive businesses, those are uh, gas stations, restaurants, those businesses that that deal with high levels of cash. Uh, privately owned ATM machines, 
Uh, those are the ones, those small machines that typically carry about a $3 charge every time you walk into it, but they're very uh, convenient in, in convenience stores. And, and those are not typically owned by a bank. They're owned by individuals um, and they have replenishing agreements and servicing agreements relative to them, but they carry a higher level of risk. So we have to conduct enhanced due diligence. Um, and, and then marijuana related businesses, not just medical marijuana, but also recreational marijuana. Um, and one of the big issues there is, is that, you know, mm. uh, as we know, not a lot gets done in Washington. They, they talk about it an awful lot, but they, uh, they certainly haven't got any bills passed in Washington that would uh, legalize uh, marijuana on the federal level. So while individual states um, have legalized it for recreational and medical purposes, the federal government hasn't. Now, that doesn't mean we can't bank those relationships. It just means the controls that we put around those processes um, have to be fairly robust and we have to conduct enhanced due diligence for each one of those uh, customers. Customer identification is another area. Um, it was in place prior to 9-11, but it was called Know Your Customer. And the only thing we had to do is identify uh, individuals. As part of the Patriot Act after 9-11, we're now required under customer identification procedures to identify and verify. So that's the difference between what we used to have to do versus what we have to do now. Uh, OFAC, that stands for the Office of Foreign Asset Controls. And this is a, a list that includes sanctioned individuals or countries um, that, that, uh, um, that we, uh, we can, that basically what the rule says is that if we have a positive hit, so if we have a customer who's trying to conduct a transaction or is in our database that has a positive hit on the OFAC list, we would be required to block or freeze those assets and report those on a form to the Treasury. And then Treasury would give us instructions as to whether we could release those, whether we have to hold those and continue to block them for periods of time, depending on what the uh, what their response is. Uh, 314A is is a uh, is a law enforcement list. Essentially, we have to check to make sure that we don't have a suspect uh, or a business um, uh, within our database. And we again, it's a list that we have to check a series of control numbers to look at the uh, the suspects um, and then uh, run against our databases to make sure we don't have any positive hits. If in fact we did, we would report uh, accordingly. Uh, to the law enforcement agency that initiated the 314A request. 314B, um, that gives us the opportunity or the ability to share uh, non-public personal information about certain investigations, could be fraud investigations, uh, with other financial institutions as long as we are a registered participant and as long as we have confirmed that the institution we're sharing the information with is also a registered participant. So, uh, again, it, it's a process we have to confirm uh, before we start sharing those types of information. And then last but not least, I don't want to leave it out, but the, um, it's called Section uh, 311 Special Measures. And, and that's dealing with uh, foreign uh, transactions, uh, foreign financial institutions. And if we had a positive hit there, there would be a series of instructions as to what the special measure is. And then again, we would have to report that accordingly. So you can see it's pretty exhaustive and that's why I uh, I like to break it down into those two parts. Yes, uh, and this is good information. So are there areas with, within the provisions that you just discussed that carry a higher degree of risk for non-compliance? 
Yeah, uh, the answer, well, I guess the short answer to that is yes. And in, in, in to date, a vast majority of the uh, quote unquote civil money, civil money penalties that we uh, have seen assessed are the result of financial institutions failure to monitor, identify and report suspicious activities. Um, so it's imperative that institutions have strong controls in place relative to the suspicious activity uh, monitoring. Uh, in addition, regulators have have really set, an, uh, I'll say, a new expectations that institutions implement what we call a, a SAR no-file process. So uh, this is a process where uh, typically it involves more than two people who are tasked with reviewing internal suspicious activity referrals from staff or systems to determine whether the facts and circumstances support the filing of a suspicious activity report. Um, you know, I typically call this a SAR referral program. Um, if they don't have one in place, then they better do so immediately. And these are reviewed very, very heavily uh, by the regulators, and, and it's now an expectation. Um, not only do they want to see the suspicious activity reports that have been filed, they also want to see the suspicious activity reports that have not been filed or the referrals that haven't been filed to see whether there's, again, strong controls around that, that process um, and whether something that should have been filed wasn't, uh, they would have that discussion with the institution. And then last but not least, um, and this has always been a real big issue ever since the uh, customer due diligence provisions came out, and, and, and that has to do with the types of questions that institutions ask in order to establish that baseline of risk and whether somebody's deviated from it. And, you know, a vast majority of the questions we already ask anyway, we just do a very poor job of analyzing it. You know, if somebody is taking, you know, I, I live here in Maine and, and the one thing that would stand out to me would be if all of a sudden somebody shows up on your doorstep to open up a new account, they've got $9,000 in cash uh, and they're from uh, Massachusetts, um, but opening an account here in Maine, I mean, that right there just doesn't pass the sniff test. Well, that's all part of customer due diligence in the analyzing the information. I didn't say that the account wouldn't be opened, although the institution has the ability to refuse. But they have to conduct that due diligence. I mean, obviously, the first question is, where did the funds come from and why are you here on my doorstep with $9,000 in cash? That's part of the process. The other part of the process is, you know, why are you driving from Massachusetts um, to open up an account here in Maine? I mean, that's another part. So, you know, that's a obviously a, a real clear, a basic example, um, but it can be much more complicated than that. And so uh, it is important that they have strong customer due diligence controls in place. Dean. I never thought that I would at, uh, thank somebody for presenting a list of BS, but huh. in this case, it's particularly appropriate. The basic stuff and then the additional responsibilities imposed since 9-11 uh, under uh, the uh, BSA. This has definitely been informative and eye-opening for me, and I thank you for presenting this information to our audience today. This is Len Suzio from GeodataVision. And this is Dean Stockford from M&M Consulting saying thank you for listening to today's topic, BSA Basics. Welcome to the Compliance 911 Show, a no-nonsense podcast discussing hot topics for today's busy compliance professional. It's everything you wanted to know about regulatory compliance, but, but we're, we're afraid, afraid to ask. And now, here are your hosts, Dean Stockford of M&M Consulting, 
and Len Suzio of Geodata Vision.